1: Christ is exactly like God who cannot be seen. He is the firstborn Son, superior to all creation. Everything was created by Him, everything in heaven and on earth, everything seen and unseen, including all forces and powers and all rulers and authorities. All things were created by God's Son, and everything was made for him.
0: Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 and 16 Contemporary English Version
1: So once again I will do things that shock and amaze them, and I will destroy the wisdom of those who claim to know and understand.
0: Isaiah chapter 29 verse 14 Contemporary English Version Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. If you've been with us on our last several episodes of Anchored by Truth, you know we've taken on one of the most challenging subjects most Christians encounter, addressing objections to God's existence. We've called this series, The Lord of Logic. Why? Because when God created man in his image, God communicated to man some of the attributes God possessed. Among the attributes God communicated to man was reasoning ability, the ability to apply logic and reason to evidence, to permit man to understand the beauty, wonder, and order God had implanted in his universe. As the creator of logic and reason, God is also the Lord of logic and reason. Sadly, in his fallen condition, Man does not always use logic and reason in the service of God. You sometimes hear people say things like, You have faith in God, but I use logic to understand the world. In doing so, they are attempting to establish a false dichotomy that the Christian faith isn't supported by logic and reason. But the Christian faith is consistent with logic and reason, and that's what we've been pointing out in the series. So today, as we wrap up the series, in the studio we have R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. He's going to finish the summary we began in our last episode of all that we've learned in the first eight episodes. We're doing this to identify some principles everyone can use in their own Christian walk to more firmly anchor themselves to the inspired truth of God. R.D., would you care to make a few opening comments?
2: Well, in the first three episodes of this series, we did some thinking about thinking. And we did that because we wanted to find some principles that could guide us in our thinking as we began to analyze five specific objections that are often lodged against God's existence. Now, I would really encourage the listeners to check out those episodes because in those episodes, we laid much of the foundation that we used in our subsequent analysis of the individual objections to the existence of God. Now, when we did the review, the analyses of the individual objections to God, you were joined by Doug Apple, who is the manager of the Wave 94 radio station in Tallahassee. And you and Doug did a great job of tackling those individual objections. But the foundation for how we went about analyzing those individual objections, that foundation was laid in the first three episodes when, as I have said, we did our thinking about thinking. Now, in our last week's episode on Anchored by Truth, we began our summary of all the material that had been covered in those first eight episodes of this series. So, in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we actually reviewed the analysis of the first two individual objections about the existence of God. The first of those two objections is the objection that since we can't see, hear, or touch God, since we can't perceive God with our five senses, we don't have any evidence that God exists. And the second objection that we took a look at was that even if God does exist, God would be so different from human beings that he would be unknowable. In other words, even if God is out there somewhere and he does exist, he's so different from all of us that we have no meaningful way. We have literally no capacity to actually know anything about God. So God might exist according to this objection, but he is unknowable. So anyone who would like to investigate any of those topics more thoroughly, and we would really encourage people to do that, can get the first three episodes of this series where we did our Thinking About Thinking Or they can grab the next five episodes where Doug Apple came in and helped you look at the individual objections to the existence of God. Or we've began our summary in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, and all those are available from people's favorite podcasting app.
0: So today we want to proceed to a review of the last three specific objections. First, that there are so many concepts of God that exist around the world that it's impossible to know which, if any of them, is true. Next, that the existence of evil in the world means that God either doesn't exist at all or isn't all-good and all-powerful if he does exist. This would rule out the existence of the God of the Bible. And finally, the last objection is that human beings invented the whole concept of God just to serve as a sort of psychological crutch to help them feel better or have an explanation for events or phenomena that would otherwise be inexplicable. So, let's take a look at the objection that there are so many differing concepts of God that exist around the world that it's impossible to know which, if any, is true. This objection is somewhat similar to the objection that even if God does exist, he is unknowable. Both of these objections revolve around the objector claiming what is possible for human beings to know or not know.
2: Exactly. So the objection that the varying concepts of God mean that we can't know the truth about God suffers from at least one of the same defects that applies to the idea that God is unknowable. And that is that the objector is in essence claiming to possess God-like knowledge while denying the existence of the real God. You know, it's one thing to proclaim the limits of your own knowledge, to say what you do or don't know, can or can't know. But it's an entirely different thing to proclaim that you know what is possible for anyone and everyone else in the world to know. It's one thing to proclaim your own ignorance. It's another thing to proclaim the ignorance of everybody who lives in the world or everyone who has lived in the world. It's perfectly reasonable for you to say, well, I can't know the truth about God. To go on and proclaim that somehow this means that no one could ever know the truth about God. Well, you've made, to say the least, a very broad claim. And in fact, it is so broad that it is just not reasonable to make that claim. I mean, it's one thing for an individual person to be able to say that they can't sort effectively among competing truth claims about God in this case. And that's fine. If that person says, well, I can't sort among these competing truth claims about God, that's one thing. But it's quite another thing to claim that there's no one else in the world today or who has ever lived or whoever will live suffers from that same problem that they can't sort among the competing truth claims about God and know which of those truth claims is actually valid. But the claim that competing truth claims about God prevents knowing which of the claims is true has another defect And this defect is fatal. Which is? Well, the claim that the existence of competing truth claims prevents the discovery of knowing which truth claim is true is itself a truth claim. Now, I know that's a little bit tricky for people to understand on the first pass. So let me go over that again. The claim that the existence of competing truth claims, in other words, if someone asserts that because there's more than one truth claim, we can't know which truth claim is valid, well, that assertion is itself a truth claim. But there is at least one other truth claim that competes with that assertion, namely the opposite.
0: The opposite of the claim would be that no matter how many concepts of God exist around the world, it is still possible to sort among the claims and determine which claim is
2: valid. Exactly. So if the existence of competing truth claims means that we cannot know which of those competing truth claims is valid, then we could never know that the first claim, the assertion that we're starting with, is true. This assertion has to surrender its own claim to validity because there is at least one other competing truth claim. So, if the assertion is that the existence of multiple competing truth claims means that we cannot know which of those assertions is valid, then the original assertion itself would lose all of its claims to validity. So, a reasonable person could ask, well, what is the point of making an assertion for which the truth of the assertion will always be in doubt?" In other words, the objector, the person making the objection, is asking the other person, in this case the believer, to do exactly what they are unwilling to do. Believe in one particular truth claim over another while asserting that the mere existence of one or more competing truth claims prevents ever knowing which of the claims is valid. So in other words, the moment they make their statement that the existence of competing truth claims prevents knowing which is true, They have established a self-defeating standard.
0: Wow, I think I see what you're saying. The assertion that the mere existence of other truth claims prevents the discovery of the valid claim is self-defeating because it fails the test it sets up. But as we've noted before, this is not a simple argument to grasp. It almost sounds like we're playing word games.
2: Well, I agree with that observation. You know, these are very difficult concepts to grasp the first time you hear them. It takes real concentration and, frankly, some meditation to think through all the implications that are involved in finding out that many of the assertions that we hear every day are false because they can't pass their own test. You know, there used to be a popular philosophy based on the idea that the only things we can know to be true are those that can be proved scientifically. But that philosophy lost popularity when it was pointed out that you can't prove scientifically that the only things that you can know to be true are those that can be proven scientifically. In other words, just like the claim that we've been talking about, the point of origin for that philosophy failed its own test. And it's actually amazing when you start thinking about many of the statements that you hear, either in philosophy or even in the popular press, It's actually amazing how often you run across ideas that don't pass the test that the very idea sets up.
0: So the fourth of the five objections we've tackled was the objection that the God of the Bible can't exist because of the existence of evil. In essence, this objection says that a good God wouldn't permit evil to exist, and an all-powerful God would stop evil if he wanted to. Therefore, either God doesn't exist, or... If he does, he's not all-good and all-powerful. This would, at a minimum, exclude the God of the Bible. Where does this objection begin to fail?
2: Well, let's start by reminding everyone that all of the objections that we've been examining begin with a valid empirical observation. Now, in the case of the objection that the existence of evil means the God of the Bible doesn't exist, the empirical observation that starts this objection is very straightforward. Evil exists within the world. And Christians would readily acknowledge the validity of this observation. Christians readily acknowledge the existence of evil. So we don't differ with the objector on the starting point, but with the reasoning process that's applied afterwards. So let's see where the objector's reasoning process begins to fail. And we do that by thinking about what evil actually is.
0: You're thinking that when we talk about evil, we're talking about an ethical and moral distinction between good and evil, or say right and wrong. What you are saying is that when people label an action or behavior as being evil, they don't simply mean the action or behavior is inconvenient or even obnoxious. They mean the action or behavior has transgressed an objective standard that distinguishes or separates the good from the evil.
2: Right. So we are immediately confronted with the question about what makes one thing good and another thing evil. If there were no God, as the objector contends, then the universe would be an undirected composition of matter, energy, time, and space. In an undirected universe, ethical standards, ethical obligations, standards of oughtness, if you will, would be impossible inanimate matter and energy don't and can't establish moral or ethical standards. Only a lawgiver can establish a law, and it would take a judge to distinguish when one behavior complies with the law and another doesn't. So if God doesn't exist, there is no basis for labeling anything in the universe as being good or evil. So if God doesn't exist, then there is no point in making this objection in the first place, because there is no valid basis for saying that anyone can identify anything as being evil.
0: C.S. Lewis famously wrote that the existence of evil prevented him from becoming a Christian for a long time. He couldn't understand how a good God would permit evil and all the pain that it causes to exist in the world. But he realized that in order for him to have any idea that some things were good and others evil, there had to be a source somewhere for how that distinction could be made. And, of course, Lewis realized the only possible source for a real distinction would have to be a being that had the power of creating obligations that would be binding on his creatures.
2: Lewis, C.S. Lewis, realized that far from the existence of evil being a challenge to God's existence, the ability of men to distinguish good from evil proved that not only God must exist, but that God must have communicated some of His attributes to man. Now, let's be real clear. None of this means that the existence of evil doesn't pose a challenge to the Christian faith. I don't believe there are many thinking Christians that have ever existed who haven't wondered as they gaze at the fallen world around them why God ever permitted the snake to enter the Garden of Eden. I know I have. As have I. And I certainly don't think that we have a full or complete answer to the question of why God ever permitted evil to enter His good creation. I think that question will likely always be a mystery on this side of heaven. But we do at least know this much. If God had simply used his power to keep the serpent out of Eden, God would have been demonstrating his power and maybe even his justice. But it was only when man fell and God initiated his plan of redemption that culminated in the sacrifice of his only son for our sins, that only when God did that did we see a demonstration of God's grace and mercy. Grace is undeserved mercy. So when God made it possible for us to be saved by sacrificing His Son who had done no wrong, God gave us a very vivid illustration that He is not just a God of holiness and justice, which of course He is. He is a God of holiness and justice. But He is not just a God of holiness and justice. He is also a God of grace, mercy, and love. The entry of evil into the physical creation made it possible for God to demonstrate that grace, love, and mercy in just the most profound way, certainly that I can think about. Now, people are going to ask the question, could God have done it another way? I don't know. Let me quickly confess my ignorance on that point. I don't know whether God could have done it another way. God has his own reasons for doing everything, and as one minister I once heard say, God is good at answering a lot of questions, but he's not particularly good at answering the question, why? And God may or may not choose to answer many of these questions when we come face-to-face with Him in heaven. But you know, at that point, it really won't matter. We're going to be so bathed in the light, in the beauty of God's unmatched countenance, and we're going to be bathed in that beautiful countenance for all eternity, that so many things that seem so important to us now, frankly, aren't going to trouble us at all. So, I don't think that there is a perfect answer to the question of why God permitted evil to come into this world, but I can say for sure that when evil did enter this world, God was able to give us a very graphic demonstration that He is a God of grace, love, and mercy, and that we, those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we will be saved for all eternity because of that demonstration.
0: Praise the Lord. Okay, that takes care of the objection that God must not exist because evil exists. Where do you want to start with the final objection we discussed, that the concept of God is just a psychological crutch invented to make some of us feel better?
2: Well, first of all, let's point out that exactly the opposite charge can be leveled at anyone making the objection that the only reason they don't want to believe in God is because they don't want to have to change their lives to conform to the standards of holy living that acknowledging God requires. So, the psychological benefit argument cuts both ways. I mean, believing in God may make some people feel better, but not believing in God will make other people feel better.
0: Well then, what argument does help us know whether or how the objection breaks down? As you've noted, this objection begins with a valid empirical observation, that for many of us, our belief in God is an amazing source of strength and comfort.
2: Well, the psychological crutch objection fails on at least two key points. First, if God didn't exist, then the only alternative explanation for the existence of life is what is often termed the general theory of evolution, the belief that all life arose from inanimate particles. But if all life is the result of the random collision of inanimate particles, this includes human life. And as we discussed in the second episode in this series, this belief creates an inescapable dilemma. Now, we encapsulated this dilemma in what we called the Sarfati-Fiero maxim. The Sarfati-Fiero maxim goes like this. All denials that intelligence was necessary for the formation of life proceed from an unintelligent point of origin. Let me repeat that one more time. All denials that intelligence was necessary for the formation of life proceed from an unintelligent point of origin. So when you state the problem that way, you immediately begin to see that there is an insuperable difficulty with the whole notion that life had an unintelligent point of origin.
0: Well let's unpack that thought for a bit. The Sarfati Fiero maxim is saying that if someone denies that intelligence was involved in the creation of life, then anyone making that denial would have to admit their denial has a foundation that is unintelligent. In other words, their denial lacks an intelligent or reasonable starting point because if there was no intelligence involved in the creation of the first self-replicating macromolecule and all life evolved from that molecule, then it's hard to see at what point intelligence spontaneously became an attribute of any of the products of that evolution. Do I have that right?
2: Yes. So the Sarfati fiero maxim points to an immediate problem with the psychological crutch objection. The person making the objection certainly believes that they are making an intelligent observation. But without God, they have no sound basis for explaining the intelligence that they believe they possess. Atoms and molecules clanging around in some kind of chaotic fashion is a very, very weak explanation for explaining how human beings can form or frame abstract concepts, much less find comfort in those abstract concepts. But a second point is that in making the objection, the objector is acknowledging that all human beings have a desire to feel that their lives are meaningful. Now, Christians have an easy explanation for the reason human beings possess that desire.
0: Christians believe our lives have meaning because we were created in the image of God, and the first thing God did after creating us was to give us instructions. God told Adam to name all the animals, and after God created Eve, He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, and have dominion over the created earth. In other words, God gave human beings a mission right from the start, and fulfilling that mission gives our lives meaning, as does our relationship with our Creator.
2: You're exactly right. So Christians can easily explain why all people everywhere want to feel like their lives matter. But if human beings were just the latest product in a long string of random molecular interactions, any sense we have that our lives should have meaning would be just another effect of the randomness. And purposefulness and meaning are the exact opposite of chance in randomness.
0: So again, as we've observed in other cases... The objector affirms in their dissent the proposition from which they are dissenting. They deny God exists, but if God doesn't exist, they can point to no source for ultimate meaning in their own life. Yet surely they believe their life matters, and Christians would affirm that it does. But the only way for their life to matter is if there is a God who can impart meaning to any life. Absent God, matter, energy, space, and time were undirected. There are relationships between all four, but neither the qualities by themselves nor any relationship between the four can explain the existence of life, mind, personality, or personal attributes. Undirected, unintelligent physics plus chemistry does not produce simple biology, much less complicated abstract or conceptual phenomena such as language, law, logic, or meaning in a human life. As such, an undirected physical universe cannot explain mind or humanity. Logic, reason, or meaning created randomly would not be meaningful or reasonable, just another manifestation of the ambient
2: chaos. Exactly. So as we've gone over these five objections and how well they fare under a critical analysis, we start to see some common themes emerging. All of the objections start with a valid empirical observation. And as Christians, we can affirm the validity of those observations. Evil does exist. There are different concepts around the world. We can't sense God directly by sight, hearing, or touch. But then each of those objections proceeds from that valid empirical observation to apply a reasoning process to that empirical observation. And somewhere during that reasoning process, each objection fails. They fail because they rely on a premise that is either self-defeating or they use a premise that wouldn't be true unless God does exist.
0: So what you're saying is that it is important for us to not only know where the objections fail individually, it's also important for us to see what happens collectively.
2: Yes. You know, sadly, the world is filled with very poor reasoning habits today. A lot of this wasn't true just even a few decades ago. We used to teach our kids some sound, basic truths and reasoning processes to help guide them as they navigated through the world. We had a lot of those old-timey sayings that commemorated those very straightforward truths. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you was just a shorthand way of saying that we have to treat others with kindness and respect because that's the way we want to be treated what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, was just a quick way of saying that when we're judging situations, we must use fair and equitable standards. Now, of course, all of these straightforward truths had their roots in the Bible, but we've gotten away from so many of those. But unfortunately, those were the truths that enabled us to build strong families and strong communities.
0: Well, in our next episode of Anchored by Truth, we're going to begin an entirely new series. We hope everyone will join us then as we continue to celebrate the God who has given us an unbreakable anchor to the truth to keep us secure against the crashing wave of the world. This sounds like a great time to go to the Lord in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer of adoration for our magnificent Creator, and let's remember always to pray regularly for our nation and communities. We have all endured some trying times recently. But the Bible tells us that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The Bible assures that God hears and responds to the sincere prayers of his faithful children. A Prayer of Praise for the Creator
3: Mighty and Everlasting Father, You are a kind and merciful God. You have given us eyes to see, fingers to touch, ears to hear, and minds to understand. You bring us into the full and certain knowledge of your transcendent creative power. When men gazed at the stars and sky, They could perceive the depth, but not measure the distance. Through your grace, man now has the ability to understand that your cosmos is more supremely complex and vast than ever could have been known before. What mortal mind can fathom magnificence. Praise be to you, Father of the galaxy, and praise to your Son, who created at your right hand. It is because of his descent that we will one day be lifted up, so we pray and give thanks in his name. Amen.
0: We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where
2: we're not famous, but our boss is.